Hello and welcome to the Dive Deep, Climb High podcast. I'm Mel Luizu and together with my guests, we explore all different aspects of leadership in higher education. With inspiring stories, practical tips and a little bit of fishiness, this show will help you dive deep into the leader you are and climb high, unleashing your power and potential. Dive deep, climb high, can-do leadership in a world of can't. Before we start today, I wonder, is there a challenge you're facing at work? Perhaps you're not sure what to do about it, or if there is anyone out there who can help you. Why not book in a call using the Calendly link in the show notes and we can have a chat. I'm always happy to help. And it's true what they say. Two heads really are better than one when you're diving deep and climbing high. Today, we're going to be diving deep into the world of conflict and conflict resolution. I first heard my guest speak at an international conference last year. Her talk had the most profound effect on me. There were no flashy slides, just one person stood on stage sharing her story. For the 30 minutes that she spoke, there was not a single sound from the audience of 300. I didn't realize it at the time, but I was crying silent tears. It is an absolute pleasure to have her as a guest on the show today because she truly embodies what she speaks about and what she sees as her purpose in the world. What an honour and privilege it is to welcome the awe-inspiring Jo Berry. Jo, hello. Oh, wow. Thank you for the amazing introduction and wonderful to be with you today. Oh, I can't tell you how pleased I was when I sent you that email and you said, yeah, of course I'll come on the show. Honestly, I have heard lots and lots of speakers, lots of brilliant speakers over the years. But your talk and chatting to you in the coffee break afterwards was just unbelievable because as I said to you at the time we all are on a journey to be authentic to be our true selves but I have never seen anyone embody the messages that you embody in such a complete way so I am so grateful that you are here and we get to share your story what you do with the audience so perhaps Let's kick off with what is the work that you are doing at the moment? What, do you, what is your, your purpose? Oh, I'm just so touched by your words. <laughs> I am working on so many different projects at the moment. You know, it's um, like almost like, where do I start? I'm um, going to be speaking in a school in a couple of weeks. And for me, working in schools is always something that I feel is the most important work because the young people have inherited a very difficult world, I believe. And when I go into schools, the way I go is that I'm there to be with them. I'm not there to teach them to do anything to them. I'm there to be with them. I'm there to listen, to empower, to see them, to validate them. 
And I love when I can give my talk, which is a talk which I can give in 15, 20 minutes. Um, and because of the talk, it immediately creates a trust and a connection and young people feel seen in the talk. And then I then move into empowering them to be change makers because I believe they are all change makers. And I ask them, what is the area in the world that you'd most like to change? What, what are you most scared about, worried about, passionate about? because you can make a difference. And then if there's time, they can work in small groups to create different projects of what they can do to change the world. And that gives them a sense of, actually, they have power, they have a voice, they matter. You know, they have they have the means to do, to do something right now. It doesn't have to be huge. And hopefully that will leave them feeling heard, acknowledged, validated, inspired, and maybe with a vision of their lives. I've had some young people come to me and say, you know, I now know who I am and what I want to do, and I'm changing my university course. And I've met some of them later on, and they've had a whole new career because it gave them a sense of what was possible for them and aligned their, maybe they've got grievances. You know, for a lot of young people I work in, they've experienced racism or they've experienced being bullied. And it gives them a sense that they can take those grievances and turn them around into something positive. And that's, I think, what my life is about. How do we do that? And that's what I demonstrate. You totally do. So some people may know your name because, you know, there's been BBC documentaries that you've been involved in. You've been in a lot of press. And as I said before we came on air, I was looking back at some magazines and I found you in there in a 2020 edition. And I guess it's your story, your journey that is the inspiration when you go into to schools and all the other work that you do. So perhaps you can share that with us. Yes. So briefly, I was 27 when my father was killed in a terrorist attack. It was the Brighton bomb, for those that might remember, because the whole Conservative government um, could have been killed. Um, the IRA were responsible and um, five people were killed, including my dad, who was an MP. And um, so I was only 27. I thought at the time I was quite old, but now my daughters are older than, than I was and actually feels I was quite young. Um, and my whole world changed. I was devastated, you know, because I felt for the first time part of a war, part of a violent conflict. Um, and how it happened was really important to me. So I was grieving for my dad, but also open now to the reality of, of war. And so two days later, I made a choice. And the choice was, do I become bitter? Do I have an enemy? Do I stay angry? Um, do I close down on the person I had been? Do I find a way to bring something positive out of this and to give up revenge and to bring some peace to the utter horror of it all. And that was the choice I made. <laughs> and the only thing I knew was that I could trust. Somehow life would bring me the experiences. You know, and that was in 1984. Um, and one of the huge things that's happened, and, and there's like so many things that have happened. I've had like moments of serendipity and synchronicity and extraordinary meetings. And I was traveling in Belfast in the middle of the conflict, meeting people, all sorts of things. But the big thing happened to me was after the peace process. So the one person who was held responsible, he came out of prison in 99, Patrick McGee, and I met him in 2000. And it was quite a hard meeting to organize. 
um, but I was very determined. And um, that first meeting was three hours and it gave me another direction because I thought my my journey would almost end with meeting him. You know, I couldn't see beyond that because I just wanted to, I didn't want to meet him to tell him he was bad or evil. I just wanted to see him as a human being because he was really, really demonized and vilified. And I wanted to know the human story behind all the labels. I didn't need him to say he was sorry. I just wanted him to show up and then I would find a way to see him as a person. Um, and that's what happened. But that's not all that happened. Um, he, he did start off um, giving me political justification and he's intellectual and, you know, and, and I knew he was going to do that. I'd done a bit of preparation. and um, But I do remember seeing that he was someone who cared for his community and that was why he chose violence. Now, for me, violence is never a way to protect a community. I, I'm, uh, I've been following nonviolence um, since a teenager, so it's a bit more complex these days. I still believe in nonviolence. Um, but I could understand a little bit about his own journey. And then I thought, I'm going to go, because um, this is quite difficult. And then he he changed. And he started his own journey. And he started off by saying, I don't know anymore who I am. I don't know um, what to say. Can I hear your anger and your pain? What can I do for you? And I knew that he'd he'd started a journey which involved him being vulnerable and open and recognizing the impact of what he'd done and actually recognizing he killed a wonderful human being with a soul, which is how he would describe my dad soon after. Whilst when he planted that bomb, he demonized everyone. Like there was no one in the hotel. You know, there weren't human beings, and that's the nature of violence. You know, there was just it was just a means to an end, legitimate target. But now he's humanizing my dad. And I'm humanizing Patrick McGee. And it's extraordinary. And it's electric and and it's scary and so I stayed for the next hour and a half and I knew that meeting would lead us to doing a second meeting and that's when a, we had someone come to film it but when we were never going to go public you know I was like no way I can't I can't go public this is this is confidential it was too much that other people know but a year later we did go public and and we've shared platforms over 300 times and I will be speaking with him in a school in a, in a few weeks in Tower Hamlets and um, and we'll be going to Switzerland later in the year to a peace centre. We don't do a lot together anymore, but there are, you know, every now and again, we, we touch base and connect. And I do regard him as a friend, but it's an unusual friendship. But I appreciate that he really trusts me. We built this trust over the years. And it's not always easy. It can be challenging. And, you know, I have grown as a person. What I've gained by transforming my trauma is incredible. The strengths, the opportunities to make a difference, which is what I wanted to do. You know, I wanted to somehow turn it around to make a difference in the world rather than sitting there feeling helpless and powerless. It's very easy when terrible things happen to feel we have no power. What can we do? But I took my power back and said, I did not choose what happened to me. I can choose how I respond. And you know, and through that commitment, so many amazing things have happened. I mean, hearing it again for the second time, I mean, such an inspiring story. And I, I think what you talked about there, and you talk about it, you know, the articles that I've read, and you talk about that empathy. Yeah. And and I think for me, this is, this is a bit that caused my silent 
tears is because we're all on a journey. I, well, certainly I am to to see the the story behind the person yeah. and what is going on. And actually, when you get that, then you can find those places where you can come together to hear you do it after such, you, you know, the, the tragic start, you know, the trauma is unbelievable. And I so admire you for that. But I also know that as a result of the part, it's not an easy path for you to choose because even now people cannot comprehend no. the journey that you have taken. No. How do you deal with with that? So my motivation is not to do this to be liked. You know, while it's a bit of an experiment, you know, like if we keep on doing the same same things, same way we've always done them, then nothing's going to change. So I've decided to end the cycle of violence revenge and have dialogue with the man who hurt me so much. And um, because I believe that the way to create a different future, you know, is to have those difficult conversations, you know, is to see the humanity in people that is hard. Um, and the vision I now have of the world is about unbounded empathy. It's very easy to have empathy for those that are like us, but then can we have empathy for our other and what would the world look like? So yes, there are times you know when I've been seriously challenged by people, um, and I've been developing my self worth. You know, I can still have an inner critic that occasionally can have a go at me and be really difficult. But I'm also learning to manage that. So self care is important. Self talk is important. And one of the questions I always ask myself is, what do I need right now to feel better? When I do feel discouraged and despondent, and you know, and recognizing that. Even when people um, can be quite brutal, and I've had from the press as well, you know, it's an opportunity for me to grow my self-worth. So it's all an opportunity to love myself more, to learn more. And that's how I see it. And I have the most amazing group of friends who I might really up and go, OK, I need to be reminded I've lost the plot. Help me. And, you know, and I think that's really, really important. But the idea of, of empathy, I think it... You know, how how would a school look like if if we practice empathy and and organisations? I work with organisations, you know, who have perhaps a bit of a culture of blaming, especially after mistakes, and people looking to, for other people to take responsibility. You know, and what would it look like? And I work in the restorative world as well, and the I can facilitate all sorts of workshops for people to look at how can they respond differently how can they communicate and that's what I, I absolutely love it when people are talking about what's what's going on inside them and how can they meet their need in a way which may be to have a difficult conversation without blaming or shaming someone because we're so used to shaming each other when things are difficult you know if I gone in and shamed and blamed Patrick McGee he wouldn't have changed you know he changed because he had choice to change and he felt to change. And I think that's true in, you know, in schools, um, in organisations. People change because they feel it. And if shame and blame is involved, then people get either defensive or aggressive. Or, you know, it's it's not going to bring a sense of, like, I really want to look at my behaviour and see how I can change. That's going to want to go, you know, just go away, leave me alone. So it's about... How how can we communicate with respect and dignity? And and I do regard 
Patrick McGee as as my teacher in, in this. And what, and what a teacher, you know, he's like, it's, and where I've, I've had to kind of go deep and dig deep and find extra resources and, and extra skills in order to have those difficult conversations. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, obviously, uh, you're talking that, you know, what you faced, everything that you've been through is is huge. But actually, what you talked about, that sort of demonising people, blaming, that happens, as you've rightly said, in organisations. Yeah. So many times you see leaders doing that. And I've been party to conversations where the humanity goes out the window and, and you have somebody mm. that has a different point of view, their, their perspective of the world is different. And we start to demonise them, which is really destructive. So when you're working with people and you identify that that is going on, how do you deal with that? How do you break that down for people? Well, it depends on the need of the organisation. But the first thing I would do, if there's like a, a conflict going on and people are being demonised and labelled, I would do a lot of preparation work with each person individually. Because when there's pain, when people have been hurt, um, they just need to be heard before you can do anything. You know, And I know how to listen because I know how to not listen. So I'm, I'm aware of when I can listen and when I can't. And so I'll go in and do some listening to all the people and discover what the needs are. Um, as one organisation, um, there's only two people and I worked with them for about, they had about five sessions each before they were ready to meet because there was so much damage that had happened with both of them. And there was so much of both of them just thinking the other person was wrong. Um, and by the end of the fifth session, they'd realised that their own trauma, their own wounds had been triggered. It was also to do about patterns in their lives and I also taught them skills about how to communicate hurt um, and there's a big difference by by saying to someone you know you are you know you are horrible you are nasty you are wrong to when you send that email to me at eight at night wanting an answer by five past eight and I have a special needs child at home you know I felt panicky um and you know you, you describe the behavior and the impact and immediately then the other person can hear it so i taught them skills about how to communicate it and how to listen to each other so the other person felt heard and then when we came to the session they each had five areas they wanted to talk about five things that had happened and they went through them now as the actual conclusion was that the one of the people did decide to leave the organization but that was also a fair a fair choice and right for her but she had done everything she could to be heard you know so it's a lot of skills and preparation and unraveling the needs and and I've done more general kind of workshops of just teaching moving from labels to describing behavior speaking about emotions from I rather than you um you know how do you have difficult conversations and then also about leadership because I think leadership is really important what's being modeled in the organization what kind of leadership is it so yeah I love all that kind of work brilliant so I've got two questions that have come out of that um so for you what is good leadership leadership for me is the ability to 
have empathy with everyone in the organization, to recognize um, one's own patterns of wanting to blame and control. I don't think controlling works. It's very much for me, a leadership works with people. So yes, they can have boundaries, but they work with them. They're not there with all the answers. That does not create a safe listening, empathic culture. A leader will be able to have boundaries and will be able to challenge people, but in a way which is about the dignity without shaming, without making them wrong. And they'll give people space to make mistakes, but learn from them. So it's not a punishing culture. It's not a, it's not like a school of sort of discipline and punishment. It's much more about, you know, we're all here to learn. And they might even disclose themselves that they they're learning. Because I think if they disclose that they they make mistakes and get things wrong, have bad days, then that gives space for everyone else to say, actually, you know what, I'm really stressed today. This happened last night. It's going to influence my work. And then there can be maybe, um, I mean, depending on the organization, you know, some special um, special spaces for, for them to take time out or whatever they need. So looking at the needs of the organization, um, and that requires an emotional maturity and emotional intelligence. Now, emotional intelligence, all that is sort of seen as soft skills, isn't it? Which really annoys me. I agree. Because this isn't soft soft skills. This is like some of the hardest skills, you know. Like, I mean, the other day I, I got something really wrong um, with my three daughters and they just needed me to listen to, to the impact on them. And honestly, I was squirming and wanting to justify my position yeah, but I think a true leader goes, oh, actually, yeah, put the hands up. You know, actually that day I was moving into control and what I did was not okay. Tell me the impact of my actions and I'm going to learn. Now, how many leaders can do that? Mm. What do you think? Do you think many can? I think it's a journey. Um, and yeah. I, I think that um, the world would be a better place if there were more people that could do that. And certainly... I think there is greater hope that people are understanding that as a an effective leadership style um, that will will bring people with them. That's certainly yeah. what I would practice. But I think that people, for all the reasons that you've alluded to, find it very difficult to, you know, it's almost like I'm a leader, I have to be right. But actually... Yes. You don't have to be right. You have to be honest. And we all have days, like you say, when we, we get it wrong. And I love that, that you, you know, your daughters can make you like squirm and, and that you, you know, you really wanted to defend yourself. That's often what we want to do. But actually, that isn't the most effective strategy. Yeah. So, yes, I completely concur. And I completely concur that there aren't enough leaders out there working in that way. Which brings me to my other question. You talked about this, about unbounded empathy. Mm. What what does that mean for you? Well, you, you mentioned the word giving up being right, you know, and I think that's a big part of it. Like for a lot of people, they're so much wanting to justify their right, which means other people are wrong you know, does create an us and them. Um, and so unbounded empathy is going beyond right and wrong and saying, actually, even if I disagree with 
with your beliefs and your behavior. I'm going to let go of my need to be right and be curious and hear your story. And that takes a big shift. That's work, that's emotional work, you know, and that's not something that um, is possible all the time, but it's a fantastic aim. You know, I do quite difficult restorative work in prisons, right, with homicide and murder cases. And when I'm doing that work, I'm listening to the victim and I'm listening to the sort of the harmer in prison. And I'm able to to be present to both of them or neighborhood dispute. I can have like four different families. I don't like doing neighborhood dispute because it's really difficult. And they're all so attached to being right. And they got evidence that you're wrong, you're wrong. Well, actually it's possible to know that they've all got valid stories. All their positions are are understandable. Um, and that is an ability as human beings we have, we can do that. But the kind of what we're shown in our politics and in our world is that you have to take positions. People want to know what position you take, you know, and actually, you know, it's possible to understand and listen to every perspective. And this unbounded empathy is my, I suppose is my focus and my vision. And I do get attached to being right sometimes. You know, I do have arguments. You know, I do sometimes don't want to know. I just want to tell you you're wrong. <laughs> you know, so I'm not totally living this all the time, but that's that to me is is the vision. And wouldn't the world look different if we, you know, if if someone's having a hard day rather than just make up a story that perhaps they don't like us or perhaps they're trying to hurt us, we stop there and go, oh, maybe it's not about us. Actually, I wonder what's going on in their lives. Mm. And I'm going to find out, are they okay? Rather than take it personally and go, oh, they must have a grudge against me. You know, actually, maybe it's not about us, it's about them. So I love just changing the focus and just, change it around so we're much more loving and and curious yeah and I I think that's it it's swapping control for for curiosity and I I think you you said it again I totally agree with this as well is you know we love to label people yes so you know you're this but but actually we can be this and this and as you say for for Patrick you know he was a terrorist that was a label but he was also a father and a partner and it's understanding that we are complex and if we let go of control if we let go of that need to be right we expand and and actually then are able to take on the different perspectives even if they aren't something that we naturally align with um so it is, it, you know, it is, it is really interesting. And in theory, it sounds relatively simple. <laughs> the complexity is actually practicing that and and living that. And as you say, you don't live it every day, but I think that the journey that you've been on through the death of your father shows that you've had to live it and embody it to a much greater extent than than a lot of us. Mm have yeah so what's a big vision for you what you know what is it that you want to achieve in the world if you if you could achieve just one thing what what would that be well I'd like my book to be published next year (laughs) I don't even have a publisher 
Um, so yeah, I'd, I'd like to be able to develop the vision of unbounded empathy. Um, and I like for people to know what's possible because not everybody has dreamt the same dream I've had. And I sort of show people what's possible so then they can make changes in their own lives. And the unbounded empathy is a sense that if I lived your life, you know, I may have made the same choices. And I'd love for, for more people to know that that is a way of, in a way, empowering ourselves. I'm also working with someone to make a feature film, not because I want to be famous, but because of the sense of, you know, we don't need to go for revenge. And, and in my book, I will talk about how revenge really hurts us in a way which I don't think it's talked about enough. And so I have a vision also of working more in different parts of the world internationally. And I'd like to work more with leaders. I'm very much a grassroots person and I want to do more. I mean, even though, you know, I'm now in my mid sixties, I still feel I'm just beginning. I don't know how many years I have left, but I'm totally here to do as much as I can. And I'm dreaming for the next five, 10 years to have more impact in the world. I haven't done enough yet. I'm sure you will. And honestly, as I said to you numerous times already in the few times we've spoken, if there is anything that I can do to help you, I think the cause that you have, the journey that you're on, the path, the world needs it, you know, locally, nationally, internationally. Um, and I really hope that, well, I know that people will be inspired by this conversation. I'm so grateful. Oh, thank you. This sounds like a little bit of an innocuous question now, but but given everything that you have been through in your life and, and yeah. you know, what you've had to do, is there a time where you've really, I mean, you've had to dive deep lots of times, but but is there something that you would like to share with the listeners about a time when you've had to dive deep and the impact that that had on you? Mm, yeah, we were right. <laughs> there have been many, many times. <laughs> You know, but I, mean, I remember when I was trying to meet Patrick McGee, and at that time, I was in an abusive marriage. My self-esteem was very low, um, and I didn't have the self-worth I have now, some of the skills I didn't have. Um, but there was a spark in me. There was something in me just saying, I know I need to meet Patrick McGee. That's my next step. And I remember one day I went to ask a lot of sort of peace experts in Northern Ireland. And I was told by these peace experts, apart from one South African woman who I'm so in touch with, like the other 20 people said, oh, you shouldn't do it. You know, you mustn't do it. It's not the right time. We just had the peace process. You're not ready. I had a mediator tell me I wasn't ready to meet him. You know, it was, it was a lot of... The people I was testing it out were, were all kind of like, no, you shouldn't do this. And yet <laughs> I did it, you know, because, and it was, it wasn't like a huge impulse, you know, it was this tiny thing that wouldn't go away. And it was like saying, you know, trust this, even though other people don't understand. Joe, you need this for your healing. And I knew enough to know I had to listen to it despite everyone else thinking I was mad and that I shouldn't do it. And, you know, looking back, I I did it. And other times people have told me all sorts of things. I betrayed my father. I mean, I've had all sorts of labels being given to me. But through trusting that that part, and I think we've all got that part in us, that, that even though it might look crazy to other people, 
and not the best thing to do. There's a part of us that knows that it's right for us, you know. And when I went public, same thing. It was very scary, but I trusted again that it was the right thing to do. And that's, you know, that's been true ever since. As I've, if I feel that impulse, then I know, you know, even if those around me um, are going to be surprised or, you know, just feel threatened by it or challenged, if I know it's right for me, then that will give me the strength to be able to listen. I can listen to people who think what I've done is completely wrong. I don't mind. I can do that because I do know I followed something that was true for me. Yeah. That is such a powerful message, following that truth, that intuition that that we all have. And I think we lose that, you know, and I think that actually tuning back into that, even when the rest of the world is saying crazy, when we have something inside of us, we need to follow it. Yes. So powerful. Thank you. Because I, I lost it. I lost it for a long time. You know, when I got it back, it was so incredible to feel it again. Um, and yeah, we all have that potential. We do. We definitely, definitely do. So when have you felt like a fish that climbed a tree? Well, most of my life. <laughs> Even you know, going back to when I was 27, you know, it was before Google. How could I bring something positive? How could I influence peace back in the middle of the troubles in Northern Ireland? You know, there was no one else doing that. And one of the first things I did was there was a memorial service and there was a beautiful piece of music written by Andrew Lloyd Webber, like a requiem mass for everyone who'd been affected by the Brighton bomb. And we were invited to go. So I wrote, it was at the Westminster Cathedral and I wrote to Dean of Westminster could there be some words about forgiveness at this memorial it was really important to me it wasn't all about vengeance and revenge and and I I got the letter back um saying no no it's not going to be appropriate it's not what this is about and and I remember feeling a bit a bit sort of stunned and shamed and I just felt so out of tune with the world all I wanted to do was just stand there and go you know, no, we just need to talk about peace and stop this fighting and, and forgiveness. And I didn't have a voice then. I didn't know what to do. So I, you know, I'd quietly kind of got on with a few other things. So, you know, I think I've been out of sync, which is sort of the image tells me for a long, long time. But then along the way, I've met other people who believe in forgiveness, who've themselves done amazing reconciliation. I have my peace heroes around the world. And so at times when I do feel out of touch and out of sync and, you know, what am I doing? There are many, many people who I can reach out to. So in that, you said when you got that response from the dean, you didn't know what to do because you didn't have the skills. So if you got that now, what would you do differently now to what you did back then? Recently, I was thinking about that. Um, I hadn't thought about it ever since. And I was thinking, actually, the me the me now would have not let it stay as a no. Okay. I would have found another way to communicate, you know, and I might have gone to have a one-to-one with him. I might have said, let's do something different then. Let's add something on. Let's have another event and made sure that the words of forgiveness, the words of love, the words that of healing were in that cathedral, I would have made sure. Yeah. 
but the me then was like oh it's a no <laughs> I didn't feel I had the power mm. and now I think I, I am empowered yeah and I would have done something about it so that's an interesting question it is and it's also interesting what's going through my mind is actually now would the response be different I don't know can't answer that one but that's going through my head oh yeah that's also true yeah that's true and also even if he said no and I felt that sort of frustration and that pain I would have found something else to do and and maybe I did because I can't remember everything that happened you know because I did find my voice and I did you know I eventually it was in 86 I was in the evening standard the London paper at the time and um, was picturing me holding a book called The Prophet by Carl Gibran. I think it was like, I forgive, headline, I forgive my father's killers, which I actually, I would never say that yeah. quite like that. But it's the evening standard in 86. And I, as you know, that time I got death threats. Yeah. After the evening standard, people said, you know, we know where you work. We're going to come and kill you because you dishonor your father and everyone who's been hurt. And so, um, yeah, that, <laughs> interesting times. Yeah. Very interesting. But it has changed. It has changed a lot since then. I think you're right. I would like to think so. (laughs) I would like to think so. I could just talk to you all day and there's so much that I would love, love, love to explore. And I hope we get the opportunity to work together at at some point so that I I can find out more. If people are interested how how can they get in touch with you? What's the best way for them to contact you to find out more? Um, well, there's many ways. I have my charity, buildingbridgesforpeace.org. Um, I have my own website, which is joe-berry.com. I'm on Twitter. I'm on Instagram. I'm on LinkedIn. So please, if anyone is listening and wants me to come in and give a talk or a workshop or have a one-to-one, I also do one-to-ones, or just want to you know, find out more, then you know, I'm very available. Absolutely. And I will put all those links in the show notes. And certainly when your book is published, we will make sure that we get that link out to listeners as well. So it just really remains for me to say thank you so much. Thank you for the work that you are doing. Thank you for embodying unbounded empathy and being an inspiration for people like me and lots and lots of people out there that that want to make the world a better place and do see that that violence isn't the way that you know love kindness understanding other people Mm. is the right path so so from the bottom of my heart thank you so much what final words of wisdom would you like to leave people with today Oh, thank you. I think that we are stronger together, that we're all needed to make a difference in the world and that this is hard emotional work and to be really kind to ourselves as well as being kind to others. I mean, there are times when I still go back to blame and shame, you know, and that's being human. And it's only through being kind to ourselves that I think we can, you know, really make a difference in the world. We need to to know that we're always doing our best. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Dive Deep, Climb High podcast with me, Mel Luizu. To help build our community of leadership listeners, please leave me an Apple podcast five-star review. Remember, our fishy adventure doesn't have to end here. Connect with me on LinkedIn, 
Instagram and Twitter. Links are in the show notes. Dive deep, climb high, can do leadership in a world of can't. <laughs>